This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood. On tonight's show, we'll be finishing our look at some of the Roman Polanski films screening at Acme by discussing his 1976 film, The Tenant. But before that, we'll be taking a look at two recent films that both star Amy Adams and are both generating a lot of interest. So a bit later, we'll be discussing the science fiction film Arrival, but first, Nocturnal Animals. This is the new film by Tom Ford, who previously directed A Single Man in 2009. And prior to that, he was mainly known for his work as a fashion designer, which included gigs such as the creative, being the creative director of Gucci and Saint Laurent. Nocturnal Animals is based on Austin Wright's 1993 novel Tony and Susan, which is structured as a story within a story. The first story stars Amy Adams as the troubled and unhappy yet extremely successful art gallery owner Susan Morrow, who receives a copy of a soon-to-be-published novel by her ex-husband, Edward Sheffield, who is played in flashback by Jake Gyllenhaal. The second story is the one contained in the novel, which Susan reads. It is about a man named Tony Hastings, also played by Jake Gyllenhaal, whose family is terrorised during a road trip through Texas. The relationship between the two stories may not be entirely obvious, but they have clearly been presented together for a reason. And broadly speaking, I'm going to throw it out there that Nocturnal Animals is a film about revenge, catharsis, suffering and finding meaning through art or not. The cast also includes Michael Shannon, Isla Fisher and Army Hammer, among others. I forgot to say good evening to you both, Emma and Hello. Alex, at the top of the show, so Hello. I'll say it hi, now. Hi. <laughs> I'll be very keen to hear your thoughts on and Nocturnal Carl Animals. Guzman. Let's not forget Carl Guzman, who's, uh, you know, love, uh, Gaspar Noe. We spoke about him in Neon Demon, and he's back again. <laughs> he's back again in Nocturnal Animals. He played Lou, the guy that is part of the posse, the road rage posse, just for anyone else who's, I don't want to spoil His it. His actor's becoming a chameleon. He keeps See? popping up. He's very good. Um, should I start? I just want to say Tom oh. Ford makes really nice slacks. He, yes. He's a champion DAC maker. <laughs> Before we even get into the film, I just wanted to give a shout out to this man, Slacks. This well, is, this is, is why a I lovely designer. Slacks. This is why I didn't introduce you at the start. <laughs> he is a fashion designer. So I knew designer. there was slack talk Alex on his is, way. There's a, she's <laughs> going to be talking about frocks and blouses any minute now. <laughs> you feel that kind Found, of... <laughs> foundation garments. This is also the Redheads film. It was like a Klimt painting at times. You know. There's a running gag apparently about how... Um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal kept confusing Amy Adams and Isla Fisher on set. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know whether that's just him being a cheeky puss, but I think that's kind of cute. They do look a lot alike. Well, that, that casting is clearly very yeah, deliberate. Yes, playing yes, on that. Yes. They're one of those... Um, Isla Fisher is kind of meant to be the surrogate wife it's one character of those, in the like, story. Um, if you Google, you know, so-and-so looks like, it's one of the famous look-like ones as Amy. Yeah. Um, a, yeah. Amy yeah. Adams and Isla yeah. Fisher. Yeah. Which yeah. I never yeah. noticed until this film, and I think they're both tremendous actors. I adore so. Isla Fisher. I want to yeah. see her doing more roles like this. Yeah. Like yeah. serious, dramatic. I still don't she's think she's really had her dues as a comedic actor. 
actor yet. She's but, um, funny. She's really she's funny. She's a fine comedic actor, but she also demonstrates how strong she is dramatically. Yeah. She, she's going to pop out with a film that just blows everybody away, and the rhetoric is going to be, wow, who knew? And it's like, yeah, we all knew. Yeah. Like, this has yeah. Been, this has just been don't the... look at the ING Direct commercials. <laughs> That's not her best work. She's much better than that. I even get a giggle from those. <laughs> But um, strangely enough, watching this film... Look, I loved it, by the way. I thought it was a fantastic movie. Um, I think Tom Ford is uh, astounding. To have two careers as an amazing fashion designer and and now an amazing filmmaker... um, it's been a while since a single man. That was his debut, wasn't it? Yeah, it this, was his this is only... Uh, Nocturnal Animals is only his second film. Second film. Yeah. So... Um, really accomplished in terms of filmmaking. I mean, there was a moment that really grabbed me at probably the pivotal turning point of this film, really high emotional, where he uses sound, where he kind of sucks out the sound, like into a vacuum, and then pushes it back in, like, really hard. Is this... Uh, in my notebook, I've written moment of silence as car drives off. Yes, Is that what you're referring that's to? that's it, exactly. That was the moment that blew my mind. Really yeah. amazing. And for a person... Now, that's working with sound. We can say that he's a, an, a visually aesthetic person because he works with fashion, but this was... This was such a nice touch. I don't know whether he came up with that or someone else, but it was great. But also the themes, I mean, I think, um, you know, he uh, for some reason, for some reason, I found a lot of similarity, not necessarily between the two films uh, explicitly, but more thematically with Haneke's Funny Games, which was around that height. I found it was really a lot around this idea of masculinity and emasculinity and uh, being able to provide for and or protect your family um, and that conundrum. And that played out really strongly for me, obviously, in Funny Games um, and in this film as well. I um this has been one of those films that that I think a lot of um critics have defaulted to it's misogynist and I think it takes us back to that classic films about misogyny aren't necessarily quote unquote misogynist films. Yeah. Um, filmmakers not necessarily condoning what they're presenting. No, I yeah. mean you can and I think that I wrote you know, my thesis on David Lynch, I know all about that argument. <laughs> well the, yeah. the classic one is of course Carrie, um which yeah. everybody yeah. praises as this huge kind of feminist celebration today. But when that film came out, no no no, you go back and read some of the not even early writing, but eighties and nineties sort of quote unquote feminist writing about Carrie was not kind. You know, that's like the kind of ground zero of that kind of yeah. that kind of attitude. I um wrote a book in 2011 on rape revenge film. Um, this is the the internal, um, you know, this is a film within a film. The film on the inside is a really classic rape revenge film. It's feeding quite explicitly, particularly into European 70s examples, that kind of road, ra- road rage, rape revenge stuff. So films like Hitchhike with Franco Nero, Act of uh, Aggression with Catherine Deneuve, which is a lesser known rape revenge film for some reason. It's got Catherine Deneuve in it. I think How it'd could be it more be? famous. Mm. What I find really fascinating about this film is the relationship of the two halves. Mm. Mm. And that, of course, comes from the book in large part, but I think it varies from... It, it deviates from the book in a really crucial way, in the, especially in relation to one character, um, but particularly in how the film ends. I think that the film ends in a lot far more ambiguously than the book um, in a really important way that I think changes the politics of the whole thing because I think there's a few ways that you can come at the ending of this film without going to spoilers... But the rape, I think it's really fascinating how it tackles this kind of rape revenge 
history. Um, there's not need to go into too much kind of history on the th- stuff, but there's two traditionally two kinds of rape revenge films there's films where a man will seek vengeance for a woman so we have death wish and um that kind of trope um and then we have where women take revenge for themselves Mm. and the politics underscoring those different types are obviously very very different um one of them is about female agency about women acting for themselves so you start getting this interesting uh, kind of dicey you know kind of feminist discourse happening but when it's you know rape is a kind of plot point that is about masculinity then you have very different things going on what i find so fascinating about this film is that the, the internal story is the classic man seeks vengeance on behalf of women but the outside story is almost the way that it's packaged in this outer story really complicates that in a really in a way that I still don't have my head around and I really like that I don't have my head around it. Mm, mm, I desperately want to see this film again because it did it troubled me and I don't mean um I I disagree with its politics or anything like that nothing that kind of blatant but I just feel that it's a riddle that I need to solve and I don't think I can the the book you can the film I think very deliberately makes is it, it very it's very keen to to, pro- to trouble us. It seeks to trouble us. Mm. <laughs> that was sort of my response as well. I mean, look, this is one of the few... Watching this film was one of the rare occasions where, as a critic, I put down my pen and paper very early into this film because I was so engrossed in what was happening. And I was especially impressed at that middle section, which is this sort of traditional noirish Western rape revenge story. We know that's a construct. We were told very deliberately this is a made-up story, and yet... It's still we're still so very heavily emotionally engaged in this story and waiting for it to go through certain beats. And I've heard some people who have been critical of this film saying they wished it was just that story and not the other stuff. And we've seen that a thousand times. Well, exactly. the, the thing is, there, yeah, there is a reason it's being presented yeah, this yeah, way, and there's a reason the film ends in a way that kind of defies expectations. Because again, I was waiting for a certain type of ending, and then when it finished, I just sat there thinking. I'm going to have to sit with this for quite a while to wrap my head around it. And I love that feeling. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that feeling of this film is a bit of a puzzle. And, I mean, some of the ideas I kind of started meditating on is, you know, is this a story about... The, the the emptiness of seeking revenge or, or the fact that catharsis doesn't get delivered in the way that we often expect. Is this film critical of the role art plays in our lives? I mean, there's the feeling I got from this film is it's suggesting that channeling our experiences through art, one removing it one step from ourselves, is possibly quite an empty experience. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, th- th- this, this character, Susan, who's an art gallery owner, is very unhappy and obviously her art is bringing her no fulfilment. And then her ex-husband is writing this novel as a sort of form of catharsis. And without going into too much detail, there is also the sense that this novel brings no sense of closure or happiness either. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's a sentiment I, I, I find horrifying, but um, the film makes it very convincingly. It's interesting because both of you guys seem to um, lock on the rape-revenge idea, whereas I think I looked at it more in terms of the other story and how the the rape revenge story informed the other story. Oh, no, so I, this I isn't, no, but, yeah. think, but this is an interesting... It, I think it's this deployed, it's deployed why, yeah. as yes. a weapon. So yes. it's, it's a man's way of punishing a woman is to tell her a rape revenge story about a character clearly based on her. Yes. I mean, that's a kind of gendered violence that's quite complicated mm. and horrible. I mean, that's, you know, that's there's a lot going on in that And setup. how he, he I, felt about their relationship mm-hmm. through this this event and the way that, that he, the way that fictional he, story the way that he uses art mm-hmm. i think is in 
is, is in kind of tension with the way that how she uses art. Mm. So one is as a kind of cathartic weapon. The other is as a, as a commodity, you know, as a, in terms of capital. You know, artists talked about <laughs> yeah. very explicitly yeah, in terms yeah. of capital yeah. um, from her perspective. And we've and got this opening, opening sequence that suggests art being used as a possible way of empowerment. I loved that. Which, which, is, so which is beautiful. So much. And I was just besotted. But then the rest besotted. of the film is very much about art being the opposite of empowerment. Well, yeah. she rejects the opening scene. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yes. She says, no, it's just junk. Yes. And yes. I mean, to me, yes, I, yes. I think this film is bookended. Um, I think if, you, if the opening and the closing scenes were different, I would like this film. Mm-hmm. But I think the strength of the opening credits and the strength of the final 90 seconds really yeah. ramped this up yeah. to something really special for it me. It ended so strongly. With Especially lately, there seems to be quite a few films that are dragging out the mm-hmm. ending a little bit. But this really... It's decisive. I think you it's need to be pretty brave decisive. to pull an ending like that to yeah. actually make a call and to leave. Yeah, the, I, I really like endings like this where you can kind of come at it from a couple of, diff- couple of different angles. And I, I suspect that the ending, sorry if you've read the book, but I feel that the ending is quite different from the book. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we came, I, I hadn't read the book. Have you read the book? Thomas. No, no, I have no, not. I'd very much like to, though. It's interesting because yeah. it's, it's... The book's kind of been revived. It wasn't big at the yeah, time, it came but it's out been in revived recently. It actually, it's a really interesting book... Um, to think about in terms of the politics. Tony and Susan is the Yeah, Austin Wright's book. Um, So it came out originally in 1993 and kind of just vanished. So it came out just after Bill Clinton Mm -hmm. um, kind of just knocked the polls, really, like just blew everybody away. Wisconsin really helped. Mm. Just just saying. Um, (laughs) Just going to throw that in there. But, yeah, so it was very much a kind of Clinton-era book. Um, the kind of context that it was written in going, you know, in that particular moment in American history and having the film released now is, you know, when there's these kind of really quite radical changes going on, it's a remarkable trajectory for this same story to be told and retold. I think it had its kind of renaissance. It kind of vanished in 93, but uh, I think I read it around 2011, 2012. Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah. it's only relatively recently yeah, the book's come back yeah, in the Yeah, it really vanished yeah. for about 20 yeah. years and it just sort of got picked yeah. up in the last couple of years and got reissued and republished and people have gone bananas for it. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Arrival, the new film by the French-Canadian filmmaker Denis Villeneuve. His most recent films, The Cario, Enemy, Prisoners and On the Seas, have all been covered on Plato's Cave over the years. Arrival is an American science fiction film that has been adapted from the acclaimed 1998 short story, Story of Your Life, by Ted Chang. It's the second film tonight we're discussing. It stars Amy Adams. This time she is linguistics professor Dr Louise Banks, who becomes part of the team to attempt to make contract, contact with one of 12 alien spaceships that have arrived on the Earth. Jeremy Renner co-stars as the scientific expert and Forrest Whitaker co-stars as the US Army colonel in charge of the operation. Now, last year we saw the release of The Martian, which came from the hard scientific fact tradition of sci-fi, while the year before that we had Interstellar, which explored more philosophical and emotional terrain. I'm going to argue that Arrival attempts to do both, presenting a plausible scenario of alien contact that takes into account the effects on international politics, while also exploring uh, far more complex and loftier concepts that relate to how humanity understands itself through communication, memory, and a few other things that would be a spoiler if I mentioned them now. It's a very ambitious film, even more so for a film with such a wide and mainstream release. 
do we feel it achieved that ambition? Why do you even need to ask? I think I'm just trying to set up the I'm, conversation. I am, a, I am a I am a drunk girl at a Motley Crue concert for Dennis Villeneuve. I just he's just one of my favourite contemporary directors. I just I'm like tits out for Villeneuve. I just I think he's amazing. He Has that become <laughs> the new Pack de Bong? I, 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 wow, this is. I just I think um, I mean Enemy. I've I know that I've mentioned Enemy before. I mean Enemy is one of my favourite films of the last couple of years. But I think Polytechnic, his film Polytechnic, is just easily one of the the top five most important films of the century i think he's just such an important director i don't think all of his films achieve that level i think some are better than others but i think that he's a genuinely interesting talented person doing interesting talented things and i i think this is a really great solid genre film i i have mixed feelings about most of his films but i've always admired him as a director and you you say you're sort of drunk in love with this guy's filmmaking i uh, i adore science fiction and i adore it when you've got the serious hard science fact stuff Mm -hmm. and i adore it when it goes in the philosophical terrain that encompasses engages with our with our emotion which i think interstellar probably overplayed its hand and didn't quite work as well as it could have for me everything comes together as it should in arrival at this this was a film that was so smart and so moving at the same time. This is a profound film to have in 2016 with such a major release. Mm. I'm going to start getting emotional and gushy. <laughs> this film really had a big effect on me, which I did not see coming. Wow. I, I really like science fiction that refuses to dumb it down, yep. even if it keeps the kind of melodramatic aspects, which I, I have no problem with, and I think that they do fit. Well, yeah, um, it, it, it's because this was interesting because really the setup, if you think about it, with the the all the alien jelly bean, massive jelly bean pods coming <laughs> coming down and hanging over major cities of the world, it could be the setup of a Roland yeah, Emmerich. It's film. Independence Day, you yeah, know. It's it's, it's a really similar day, setup, and uh, apart from many other obvious uh, filmmaking devices, uh, it it is very different to a Roland Emmerich film in that it doesn't splinter the storylines. It's very centralised around the experience of Amy Adams' character, which is Dr Louise Banks, a linguist. She's my hero. It's just so sexy anyway, talking about linguistics and communications. And the way that it also takes the angle of um, talking about or uh, interacting with the aliens from trying to not from an earthly barometer like it's it's questions all the questions are there about how how are they they are spatially different they have a different concept of time they have a di- how can we bridge this what is it what are we because we can only work from our own barometer and what we know on earth and really intelligent questions around that and intelligent answers this is what was great as well you know without having to you know literally give us the answers it does great cinematic answers that ring true and feel really smart yeah you know there is a long tradition of science fiction film about contact with, with aliens and yeah. i think some yeah. of them some you know 2001 a space odyssey is always going to be a benchmark for sort of hard science fiction that also goes into deeply philosophical terrain and that is my all-time favorite film ever mm-hmm. you know um and you know there's all, even close encounters of the third kind which is very much about spectacle cinema and delivering an emotional um sort of roller coaster and crescendo at the end it still i think seriously takes the idea that aliens would communicate in a way that's completely different to us yes, and how I, we could yes, bridge that gap. I agree. 
yeah. this takes the idea of communication into very interesting areas. Actually, but, but breaking it, that down to linguistics, I think, is a really interesting... But it, what I loved is it showed us how our reality is formed by the way we we give names to things around us. I mean, this is going... Again, I'm going to go to my uni psychoanalysis essay days when I looked at Lacan. This is the symbolic order where the world as we know it is not necessarily reality. It's the, wor- it's the world of things we've given names to. Yeah. So the way we name things and talk to each other shapes our own reality. And if you encounter the way aliens do that in a different way, it might change our notion Absolutely. of reality in profound ways. This is dog tooth. <laughs> this is uh, the Lanthimos film, Dogtooth, you know, the way it, that they it, use language to shape your like, it, It's Dogtooth meets Pontypool yeah. <laughs> in space. <laughs> this awesome. Is, this is why I don't work this in is film why promotion. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would appeal to maybe three people in the world. This is why you, this this is is why you never see Plato's cave quotes on posters. We're not good at the poster quotes on the show. It's meant to be... It's it's one film you know, it's another film you know <laughs> that are relevant. <laughs> but the, the the great thing about this film is it's like it had a B, it, it had a B story that kicked butt. I mean, or kicks butt. Uh, and I and I don't want to say anything about it because um, it will spoil the movie. But I did watch it right at the start, not knowing anything that was going to happen or coming at it completely new. And I thought this pro, um, prologue is going to really mean something, and it's going to mean something in a way that. Um, is not just uh, a, a schmaltzy connection to the aliens, right? The, and that prologue is obviously there for a reason, isn't yeah, it? So yeah. straight away I was writing down the first lines of dialogue in the film and lo and behold, they have big significance later. They do, yeah. they do, but not in the way you could expect. No, exactly. Heads up for a no. film that has me crying before the opening credits too. Yeah. Like, yep. I mean, with music? No, just the, just the actual oh, opening the sequence. Opening it's sequence. like, I can't, yeah, I don't need yeah. this in the first 90 seconds of a film. Like, yeah, I need, yeah. yeah, you know you're in... You know, well, it, it, it's, buy me a drink first. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just do that to me straight up. I need to... Well, it's part of the ambition of the film. I mean, opening in that way, you, you want to see how the film is going to top that feeling. And it's, it's a hell of a thing for the film to do to itself, and it achieves that. Actually, I just want to throw out the film that I thought of while watching this is... Um, it's a fairly, today anyway, unknown film. So if you want to avoid spoilers, don't look up this film. But it did remind me of a 1994 film from Macedonia called Before the Rain, which was a big deal when it got released. And I remember hearing about that. I never saw it's it. It's kind of been forgotten, that. although it has been released on Criterion. So it's mm-hmm. obviously a film in high esteem. But I won't say any more, but that is a film that surprises you with the way it works structurally. Yeah. And um, that tapped into to this a little bit as well. We need to right. give a shout-out to Amy Adams. Um, Amy she's, Adams... She's the girl of the hour. She this, is, this particular she is the girl of the hour. I think that this, uh, more than Nocturnal Animals, this is her film. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, yeah. And I felt that um, in the whole build-up to meeting alien life, uh, what... Villeneuve did so beautifully was create that sense of anxiety. So you often get a character, oh, they're a little bit scared, oh, what are they going to see? But this really built up a sense of anxiety and he worked beautifully with the sound, with the breathing and the radio controls. The bird tweeting Mm. was really effective. Um, I just, yeah, I just just loved it. I'm, I'm kind of quite gobsmacked by it, actually. I do have to see it again. Yeah, look, I'm... um I went in optimistic 
I guess I went in kind of biased, but um, I was pretty happy (laughs) (laughs) with this. What what I really liked about Adams in both of these films, and and I think Arrival in particular, is that she she carries such a weighted interiority. Mm. So much is going on in her. She just brings this silent internal life to these characters in both of these films, and they're very different characters. Yeah. They're very, very different characters, very, very different films. Mm-hmm. But that she, she's the, the thread. Obviously, she's the thread that runs through both of them. But the weight, the, there's a kind of emotional yeah. weight that she carries in both of these films. And she does it, tiny gestures, the way I noticed in both films, the way that she moves her hands. And both of these filmmakers really picked up her hands. There's scenes in both films that are close-ups of her hands, the way that she moves her hands, I'm just, I was just obsessed with them after... No- I saw Nocturnal Animals first and then I saw um, Arrival. Oh, okay. And I, I was just obsessed with her hands. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them, I think... I suspect that that's her performance style and that both of these directors really honed in that that is how she does her job she's so beautifully. A, she's a performer I've always admired and I think she has that rare ability to convey being vulnerable and also being so capable and strong. Like, and, and she portrays these two characteristics not in opposition of each other but as what makes up a typical human being. Yes, she is yeah. really, there's, there's a fragility to her and there's a toughness to her simultaneously and I think it's a remarkable thing for for an actor to to convey. You, you believe her as the professional in this film who, know, who has a job to do and he's going to do it um, to the absolute best of her ability and then some. You also believe that she's a human being who is going through enormous emotional stress yep, and, yep. And, and that's what makes a complex character. And it has, it has a sense of no one being... I mean, she, everyone has their own professional feel but no one is a professional in alien first contact mm. So, and that really is communicated beautifully through the film. I think all the characters manage to do that really cleverly. And, and, and you know, for all as very amazing philosophical ambition in this film. It's also a very classic science fiction about um, social cohesion. I mean, this taps into some of the classic 1950s films. Yeah. 1950s was a time of great paranoia and, 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 and hatred in America and a lot of, say, science fiction and horror and gangster films are often about fear of the outsider but you had this handful of films that were often about the outsider attempting it to bring a message of peace to Earth and, and, and the challenge was humanity finally realising that we need to work together as one. And and that yeah. theme is really strong in Arrival, and it's arrived just in time. It, it made me want to see the, uh, the, the Day the Earth Stood Still, that's, that's the not the Keanu Reeves one, yeah, yeah. one, but uh, the original film, and even Invasion of the Body Snatchers, films like that. Um, it actually got me really excited about its sort of back catalogue of um, Alien First Contact films, the really good ones. And there are a lot of really good ones. There are a lot of really bad ones as well. But um, this comes off the back of a really nice cinematic history as well. And I love that it's not doing that smug eye-roll thing that a lot of filmmakers really erroneously for me do with genre film and that they they try to reinvent the wheel that's like you know genre is broken let's fix it yeah i think that there's a real love of science fiction here um you know there's a real love for the genre and a real understanding of its mechanics and i think that's certainly what kubrick got with 2001 i mean kubrick's always understood he always understood genre you know he did it with with the war film, he did it with the horror film, he understood what he could do within that space and how to play within that space and make his own thing. Yeah. You know, he, there wasn't this smug, oh, it's broken, I'm going to fix it. Um, and I think that's one of, the thi- one of the real strengths of Arrival. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
Finishing our look at the three films referred to as Roman Polanski's Apartment Trilogy, all of which have been screening at Acme as part of their Roman Ten Times Polanski season, we come to the final film, The Tenant, from 1976. While Repulsion was about a woman in London being driven mad by her own anxieties and Rosemary's Baby was about a woman in New York being driven mad by her husband and neighbours, The Tenant is about a man in Paris who is being driven mad either by his own anxieties or his neighbours or a combination of both. Adapted from a 1964 novel by the French satirist and surrealist Roland Topol, Polanski himself plays the lead role of Trelkovsky, a quiet man who rents an apartment after its previous occupant attempted suicide. Trelkovsky becomes increasingly obsessed with finding out about the young woman who lived there before him and what happened to her, while also increasingly getting on the wrong side of his neighbours. The combination of anxieties, weird discoveries and neighbourly hostility sees Trokowski become increasingly suspicious and paranoid as he starts losing his own identity. Now, I will confess, this is the film in the trilogy I've never quite engaged with. I, I don't quite get the appeal. I, I, it wasn't popular at the time, but it's since been reclaimed as you know a great cult film and one of Polanski's better films. I rewatched it last night. I still don't get it. It's yeah. a very aggressively difficult film. It's, I mean, he's, It feels he's, like Polanski doing Polanski, and I think that's my problem with it. I don't think it's Polanski <laughs> doing Polanski. I think it's Polanski with, an, I mean, with a knife in his teeth daring you to psychoanalyse it. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, he's... So I, I love surface. it. I it's love... <laughs> I mean, I love, I love, I love when filmmakers, especially when they cast themselves in the lead role, I say, come on, read this autobiographically. I dare yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I dare you. He, he's always been very vocally against that. And I think this is the film that he really just popped a cog on that front. Yeah, where, where he, he was just so. Plays, after Macbeth, he's, he's um, a Polish character. I think we. He's a Polish uh, yeah, immigrant, yeah. and I think a lot of the character's anxiety in the original text come from that migrant sense of alienation. So that very much, um, and Polanski's generally very loyal to. And I think this is probably. I think this is renowned as this and Death and the Maiden. I think are renowned as the two adaptations that he's done that he is the most loyal to. Even more than Rosemary's Baby, yeah. which is virtually page for page. I mean, that's pretty. That's pretty yeah. loyal too. Yeah, we, sh- yeah. we should. We haven't said this yet, but this so-called apartment trilogy was an accident. It wasn't designed like this. It yes, just happened. Exactly. Mm. He made three films, all very thematically similar. And um, it feels like the tenant has, as you described in your introduction, Thomas, a bit of Rosemary's mm. Baby, a bit of Repulsion, but it doesn't quite have the clear through line that all those films, that, that those other two are just so pointed and so uh, resolute and so perfect. And this feels a little bit more floundery. I love the frenzy of it, though. I think the frenzy and the chaos yeah. and the anxiety of the character is in the film. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I think it feels like a film... It feels like a really unstable film. Yes. And a really dangerous film. And every time I watch it, I always wonder, I always get this anxiety watching it because I think this is out of control. Those other two films I think are amazing because they're so perfectly controlled. This film is off its head. It's really, (laughs) really broken and it's, it's coming... It's he's just it's he's just like bring it bring it come and come and figure I this re- out come and try to read this through the last ten years of my life. I I, I, I really liked it. Um, sorry, you go first, Thomas. No, 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 no I was just going to say I, 
I think that that messiness I can't get excited or engaged by because it's so long, it takes forever. And you, you've got the first sort of section, which is this kind of slow, methodical build that we associate with, say, Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby. And then it just, it just suddenly flips to kind of batshit crazy mode, which is really, really fun, but I don't buy it. I don't buy his trans... His, his transmation and yeah yeah i don't I, think you make yeah. i mean i don't but i, I think that's precisely the, oh, the I, challenge i, I can't like, go on board with this deliberately confusing i'm being a bad film on purpose to shock you vibe. I, don't think, I don't think it's a bad film i think it's an unsta- i think it's a, i <laughs> yeah. think it's an unstable film and i think there's a really yeah. big difference between unstable and bad yeah. i don't think it's a i don't think it's i think it's immaculate filmmaking i mean this is i think this is Sven. i mean everybody's Sven newquist is like oh bergman 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 i think two of newquist's best shot films are this and um, Bob Fosse's Star 80. I mean... It is beautiful. You know, like, Sorry, I'm going to take it's, it back. It's, it's, it's not bad made, filmmaking, but, but the unstableness loses me. That all comes from the original text as well. I mean, and, and Tupor was an old-school surrealist. Mm-hmm. Like, much more... I mean, you, you were talking about the, the surrealist traditions in Repulsion, and I think that they're, they're apparent in Rosemary's Baby, but I think that this is the film where his, his, uh, his relationship to, to surrealism comes to the fore. Um, I think it's the most consciously that he's engaged with surrealist traditions because he's adapting a surrealist text. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, and very consciously. The other thing I love about this film, and this is absolutely my bias, is Isabella Gianni is my favourite actor. <laughs> like, I just... This was such an important film in her career. She did this right on the back of um, the story of Adele H with Francois Truffaut the year before, I think. Yeah. She did this... Um, she did... Got, I mean, there's just... You, you read her, her filmography for this sort of block of five... Eight years she did uh, Nosferatu with Herzog, um, uh, Violette and Francois. You know, she just did this, this steady stream of just these these knockout films. It's her time. Um, this yeah. was her time, and this was really the big one after 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 the Truffaut um, collaboration. I think that this was the one that people. She's not on screen a lot. Um, no, it's not, not really at all. Thought of as a bigger Johnny film, but I think that it's one. Of, and I always this is like my little rule of thumb with a with a, an, a performance in a film, even if it's a small one, is if you can't imagine another actor doing it, then you know that it's a good performance. And I honestly can't imagine anybody she, she, else. She is great in this. I like I like all the parts of this film. Yeah, I don't dislike this film. For me, it's just a big letdown after the other two. Oh well, the other two are you know just absolutely beautiful films, and I, I'm the same. It, it well, I don't call it a letdown. I just um, it just feels not as. Um, not as focused as the well, it's other two. It's also not a genre films. film, and the other two are genre films. Yeah, that's, and I think that's, that that's true. And, yeah. and I didn't know that about the. Um, I didn't know that it wasn't conceived as a as a trilogy, and I know that he did other films in between. Yeah, no, well, th- th- um, this one and Rosemary's Baby were yeah novel adaptations, yeah, and yeah. Repulsion was the only one he actually wrote from scratch. Yeah. So yeah, and I, th- I think this one. I should have done more research, but I don't think this was necessarily a planned film to do. It kind of fell together Somebody relatively else, late in the uh, day. Ed- Edward Albee, the playwright, I think that this was one of those properties that had kind of done the rounds of quite a few other people before it landed with him. And it landed, and Roman um, Polanski was the one that decided to take it on. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, again, I can't imagine another director doing this. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe Bob Fosse, you know, like I really yeah. struggle yes. to think of another director yeah, that could I know what work Bob with Fosse. this particular material. It would, I, I'd like Bob to see Fosse's what Bob Fosse dance. did with the marching band music. That it, I, I like the, there's little touches in this film, though, that I think are really interesting. Like the, uh, it's for anyone who likes, 
likes turntables will get a lot out of this film because they have some beautiful turntables in there. <laughs> and uh, it also has that strange thing with the, the friend. It's got a strange... Um, it's overdubbed in a, a way that makes it feel the, more the foreign. The actors recorded in their own language and then it was was redubbed for uh-huh, various territories. Yes, so, which is yes. quite common. Which in, is common in, in Europe, especially yeah, in Italy. It was, but yeah. It, it feels but, odd. But it wasn't... Um, which kind of works. It doesn't... Uh, it, the other repulsion isn't... And of course, Rosemary's Baby wasn't done that way because it was actually not European English. But um, I think there's a real... I reckon yeah. this film's a massive influence on David Lynch. Everybody talks about David Lynch like he was born in this inspirational vacuum and he's the one who influences other people. But I think this is up there with, you know, Barber's Cool Baby Kill and a couple yeah. of other really key texts. There's some moments in The Tenant that are pure David Lynch. Yeah, the, the, the scene in Lost Highway with the video camera and the man, um, you know, with the, the maybe I'm there already, you know, the bit that I'm talking oh, about. for sure. Like, it's pure Lynch. Yeah. And it's like, there's if no nothing way else, that... all these three films have demonstrated that yep. Polanski must have been a big influence on Lynch. I reckon yeah. this one most of all. You're right. Mm. You know what? I like the first 90 minutes. I like the final... It's very long. I like the final 30 minutes. I just don't like them together. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get that, and I yeah. think I like it for exactly the reason that it drives you nuts. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get out of here, and a big shout-out to Bitter Moon. He's still going to be the, yes, one please. of your favourites, Emma. Yes, absolutely, and I think it's one of his most misunderstood films, and it is playing as part of this Acme retrospective, so please go and see it and, and put your sense of humour caps on. It's a black comedy. Look at it that way. You'll oh, love it. I like Bitter Moon as well. <laughs> Nocturnal Animals is on general release through Universal Pictures. Arrival is on general release through Roadshow films and the tenant is screening just once more this thursday as part of the roman 10 times polanski season that is currently on at the australian center for the moving image the film is screening courtesy of paramount pictures you've been listening to thomas cordwell alexandra helen nicholas and emma westwood on plato's cave this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.